Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 78, 1 through 8, 70 through 72. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded to our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Um, you've probably heard the saying, two birds with one stone, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Today's a, uh, t- today is a three birds with one stone scenario. Pretty cool, eh? Uh, we are closing uh, a sermon series that we've called Cruciform. Cruciform means in the shape of the cross. And for the last four or five weeks, we've been studying, we've been going to the scriptures to get an understanding of how the cross shapes the whole of the Christian life. How the cross of Christ transforms us and then shapes us and reworks us to occupy, to be a certain kind of people. Um, so we get to close that out. We're transitioning into the summer and the Psalms. I didn't do this intentionally. In fact, I, I initially had planned preaching a different passage, um, but I felt the spirit leading me here to Psalm 78. So we get to jumpstart the summer and the Psalms with Psalm 78 today. And then we get to address Father's Day because Psalm 78 explicitly mentions Father's Day. So we, you see three birds, one stone, look at that. Providence of the Spirit. Um, and so let me just say this. Fathers, uh, we are grateful for you. Uh, we praise the Lord for the blessing, um, both, both biological fathers, adopted fathers, spiritual fathers, and the whole spectrum of fathers. We thank you uh, for your uh, service, the way that you lead and serve your family. Uh, the way you lead and serve this church toward Jesus. I want to especially uh, thank the men who are up here on stage serving this morning. They were here early. Um, and if there are men downstairs uh, in the kids' ministry, especially, you know what? You should grab them an extra donut on the way out this morning and just say thank you uh, for serving in kids' ministry. Um, with that, I hope you grab the donut um, and that you have an enjoyable day ahead of you with the people that you love, the people that God has given you. Um, and we want to honor you and recognize you with a couple of gifts. First, there is a, you saw it 
out on the donut table. Well, there's donuts, that's a gift. And then there's a QR code that'll link you to a digital book uh, that one of our pastors wrote called Gospel Dad. Uh, I highly recommend picking that up and reading through. It's a quick read, but very, very helpful. Uh, And like Abby said, uh, we have this other special nifty thing, uh, a little coin that I will... uh, Explain. Well, actually, I don't have to explain it. It'll make more sense after the sermon. So uh, we want you to grab those things as a little token of thanks uh, and encouragement to you as uh, you live into this calling of being a gospel dad. Now, as we look at Psalm 78, it might not seem like the best Father's Day text. It might not seem that way. I mean, the first part of it, the first seven or so verses seem pretty nice, but then you get to verse eight, And there's this pretty critical thing that the author of this psalm, who's Asaph, says. Actually, he says to the children of Israel that they would not be like their fathers. That they would not be like their fathers because their fathers were a stubborn, rebellious generation. Now, that is a a hard rebuke. Uh, One that you read that's that's a harsh thing to say. Now, as I get up here this morning and want to unpack Psalm 78, my desire is to look at your children and be able to say the exact opposite. To look them in the eye and say, you should aspire to be like your dad. You see what he's doing? You see the way that he lives, the way that he carries his life, the way that he loves Jesus, the way that he serves, the way that he leads, the, the kind of virtue that he embodies? You should be like your dad. My desire is to say the exact opposite of what Asaph says in Verse eight. Now, to say that, to be able to say those things and to mean those things, we need to ask two big questions here of Psalm 78. One is, what went wrong here? What's the problem? When, when Asaph looks out at the men of Israel and comes to this conclusion where he's telling the children of Israel, don't be like your fathers, what went wrong there? And the second question piggybacks off of that and says, how do we get it right? So what went wrong, and how do we get, get it right? So we got to start with how, well, what went wrong. What is it that Asaph sees? What, what is so sordid in the eyes of Asaph when he looks out at the men of Israel? The thing that he sees here, he sees failure. He sees a breakdown among the fathers, among the men of their God-given duty. Now, to understand what this God-given duty is, you, you, well, it's scattered throughout the whole Bible. God is laying down these breadcrumbs of what it is, what responsibility he places upon the shoulders of men, of fathers specifically, what it is God calls them to do. It's on repeat throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, but here Asaph articulates these things for us in verses one through seven. When he calls the people of Israel, give ear, O my people. He's actually demonstrating this right now. He says, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. He's saying, listen, I've got something that you've got to know. You've got to listen up. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth, and I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. And so here he has this sort of generational progression that we've heard this, and then now our job is to tell the next generation and so on and so forth. Now, what exactly is he, he telling? What is he saying? What is this proclamation he's making? 
He goes on in verse four. We will not hide them. We will not hide this word from our children, but tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord. So he said, I'm gonna tell you the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders he has done. Now, this is the thing about God. God is not this this um, spiritual being quarantined in some sort of spiritual heavenly vacuum where he sort of isolates to himself and just like lobs little tidbits here and there. God is a God who has immersed himself within history. That God has chosen for himself a people, a people for his own possession, and he has worked wonders and mightily deeds to bring this to fruition. Asaph says he established a testimony in Jacob. He appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children. Now here, here, here there's two parts to this. To, to speak of this testimony, to, to speak of the wondrous deeds that God has done, what God has done to get for himself a people. And the other part of that is the law of the Lord. Psalm 19 says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The duty of fathers is to proclaim the testimony, the wonders of God, and to instruct in accordance to the word of God. He says, we were commanded by our fathers to, and then now we are to command our children, we're to teach their children, the next generation, that they would know these things to the children yet unborn and arise to tell them to their children. Now here's why. Here's the whole motivation behind. Here's why God puts this mantle of responsibility upon fathers, upon men right here. So they, verse seven, so they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments. If there were a a Westminster Shorter catechism specifically designed for men, for biological males, question and answer number one, this is is the original one. Question number one of the the Heidelberg, or excuse me, the, the Westminster catechism, what is the chief end of man? Man is like mankind. What is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, if there's one of those designed specifically for men, this is what I think it would sound like. It would sound like to glorify God and enjoy him forever while leading others to do likewise. There's two parts to this. Part one is a personal responsibility that we all men, all men have a personal responsibility to know and to love God. To love God, not just, not just a little bit of love, but to love God with all our all, with our heart, our soul, our mind, and strength. With all of our being to be fixed upon God. This is what, what Asaph is getting at in verse three. See, he's saying, to remember the things your fathers have taught you. Now, if you're in this room right now, either one of two things has happened. You either have a biological father who taught you the way of the Lord who brought you up in the church and the love of the church and the love of the gospel, the love of our creator and savior, Jesus Christ, or God has given you a surrogate father, a spiritual father, somebody who has taught you how to live in this world as a Christian. 
And so Asaph is saying, remember what your fathers taught you. Remember the gifts you received. Remember your inheritance as a Christian, all of the benefits that you've received by God. And as you remember those things, as you dwell upon them, as you meditate upon them, they, they change you, they, they, they point you in a new direction. Part one is you have a responsibility to cultivate a robust and ever-increasing devotion and worship of our Heavenly Father. Now, when you see God for who he is, that's not hard to do. When you see God as the good heavenly father that he is, our hearts gravitate towards him. Now, I realize as we celebrate Father's Day, some of us in this room have had rough upbringings, maybe hard relationships with our father. So this, we have this, um, something gets projected on our understanding of God based upon the failures of our earthly fathers. And God graciously, when he adopts us into his family through Christ, he restories us. He reorients us to the real fatherhood, the good father. And when you see that, your heart is inclined toward that and moved toward him and to obey him and to love him and to serve him. So part one is the personal responsibility to know and love God with all your all. Part two, right, the chief of man of glorify God and enjoy him forever while leading others to do likewise. The second part of this is to lead and direct in Godward pursuit, to lead and direct others in your sphere of influence in Godward pursuit. Now, if you're a father, this means your household. If you're an employer, this means your employees. If you're a church leader, this means your sphere of influence within the church, the missional community, the church at large, wherever God has placed you to use your influence to, to provoke one another to glorify God and enjoin him. This is the God-given duty within the household for fathers that we would tell our kids, tell the next generation of the mighty works of God so that they would abide by the word of God and see that God is a good God who gives us good rules to abide by. Not a single one of them is broken. Not a single one of them leads to futility or frustration. They all open us up. It's the narrow gate to the wide path of flourishing. Now, let me draw your attention back to verse seven because this is actually... This is hard work. Fatherhood is hard work. Motherhood is too. Any, any sort of leadership, whatever sector it is, it's hard work. But it's worth it because it has a telos. It has an aim, something that is so captivating, something so desirable that we're willing to put it all on the line for this. And that aim is verse seven once again, so that our children's hope will be set on God. So that our children... And our children's children, our children's children's children will be rooted in the love and the grace of our Heavenly Father. See, this is the aim of Christian parenting. It's not simply just so that our kids up and grow up and have a slightly better life than we did. It's not, I hope, uh, to, to raise them up and they'll find a good, get into a good school, then get a good job, and then have a nice life for themselves. The chief aim of Christian parenting is that our children's hope will be set in God. 
Now, the Bible has language for this kind of leadership. Um, the Bible speaks of this over and over again, and you see it a lot in the Old Testament. You see it uh, surface in the New Testament in several places. Um, the Bible speaks of this task as shepherding, of tending to a flock. Now, shepherding is a real thing. Uh, I don't know if we have many shepherds around here, if anybody in here has got shepherding experience. I was in 4-H, and so I, I raised sheep for a while, uh, but that hardly qualifies. Um, but shepherding is an occupation that has a lot of parallels to this kind of leadership that God calls his people to. Um, In fact, shepherding is the primary biblical paradigm for leadership. Now, it's because this is how God leads us. Psalm 23, one of the psalms that we'll hear preached here in the coming weeks, says, the Lord is my shepherd. You see, through Israel, they refer to God as a shepherd who leads them and guides them. God himself embodies shepherd leadership. And as God calls us to be holy as he is holy, to imitate him, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. As as we do that, as we reflect the glory of God in our spaces, fathers are called to imitate their heavenly father as they shepherd the family. Pastors are called to be under shepherds of the good shepherd. And there is this biblical pattern here for men specifically. This does not exclude women, but there's a specific call upon men to shepherd their home and their church under God and like God. Shepherd leadership is contrasted to other leadership paradigms that the, Lord, that the, that the world spews out. In the Enlightenment era, um, the model of leadership was power. Might is right is, is the mentality here. Um, it's sort of the hero, uh, valor, the strong and the noble are the ones who are on top and then they, they speak power down. It's got this sort of triangle pyramid sense thing going on. Now, that led to to a few people kind of elevating to the top, and a lot of people underneath of them um, suffered um, because what happens that that absolute power absolutely corrupts, right? Unfettered power, um, power that is is detached from the authority of God will create futility and abuse and all kinds of other terrible things. After the Enlightenment has shifted into the romantic paradigm of leadership, which, which elevated creative genius. Now, what this did was, was shift away from the power and more towards those who are intellectual, poetic, those who have, have a, a love for beauty, and there's a little bit of softness that gets introduced with this, where the edge, the, the, the sort of drive of leadership gets put away, but then there's also, in this sort of intellectual-based thing, where there's an aloofness to the leadership, there's a superiority complex because of the intellectual. So, so there's like, there's the peasants and there's the intellectuals. And then that shifts into the modern era where it's more egalitarian, where everybody is a leader and nobody answers specifically to anybody because we're all straight across the board. Now, all of these run contrary to the kind of leadership that God lays out. This is the leadership that, uh, of his people. Um, this is the leadership that God demonstrates. 
He calls men to be shepherd leaders, those who are among the flock, pulling this specifically from passages like 1 Peter, shepherd the flock that is among you. Now he's speaking to pastors, but it also applies to fathers, to other places where you're leading. Shepherd the flock, to be among the flock, to know and to love the people and to be known and loved by the people as well. Jesus talks about um, his sheep know his voice. They do what he says because they know, the sheep know that the shepherd cares for them. This is the kind of shepherd leadership that men are called into. And as we have this, this sort of um, affection and rapport that is built between the shepherd and his flock, the shepherd is to use their God-given authority, which is given from God, for the good and the flourishing of the flock. Now, this is, this is one of the contrast points between um, leadership paradigms of the world and what God lays out as leadership. See, a godly leader does not lead for the advancement of self. It is not self-motivated. It's not so that I can rise to the top or whoever that leader is, rise to the top and everybody else kind of supports my infrastructure. Shepherd leadership says, I'm in it for you guys. I'm here because God put me here to serve the people in my care. And the way that we serve the people in our care is by directing and disciplining our flock according to the word of God. Right? Which means two things. That to, to instruct in the law, but also to, to teach the promise. To instruct in the law, here's how you live and here's the promise of God. Here's how he will accomplish what he promises he will do. And as we do this, one of the key things that we have to be aware of is not only investing in the flock and building up the flock, but also functioning as protectors. We have to protect the flock from external predators Right? There, there are real wolves out there that want to kill and destroy the flock. It's not to scare you, not to, not to make a, you know, some frenzy thing go on. It's, it's a reality. There are wolves out there that are after the flock. And God calls the shepherds, the leaders, to step in and protect the flock from those external predators. But the other part of protection also is protecting the sheep from themselves at times. Protecting from the folly, the groupthink that isn't not necessarily Godwardly directed. And so there's a lot going on here when, when God uses shepherd leadership as a primary paradigm throughout scriptures. Now, Asaph understands that reality. He, he knows that God is a shepherd and, and the men of God are to be shepherds. And when he looks at the men of Israel at this time while he's writing, he sees failure and abdication of this godly leadership. He sees, he looks out and he sees bad shepherds, men that God had called to lead that aren't doing what God had called them to do. And this is what he identifies in verse 80. He says, it's a generation of, of stubborn and rebellious men. Their, their hearts are unfixed on God. They've, they've forgotten the mighty works of God. They've forgotten the law. They've forgotten the promise. Now there's great danger here. Pastor Ray Ortland says that we're always only one generation away from complete apostasy. 
We're, all it takes is one generation of forgetting these beautiful things, the inheritance that God has given his people. If one generation forgets, it all goes downhill quick. And this is what we've seen. If, if you go through um, Psalm 78, we didn't have time to go, cover all of the ground, but, but he's tracing how there has been this this tendency of, of, of abdication, of failure, of shepherding, and what happens in our people are left, the flock is left without a shepherd. And they lead themselves to destruction. They lead themselves to hardship. Now, where there's a lack of godly leadership, there will always be consequences. Hardship uh, will come, abuse will come, tyranny will come, and when these things come, God brings his judgment and curse. And we see this in the opening phases of the Bible. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the earth good. He commissions um, Adam and Eve to fill the earth and subdue it. And by Genesis chapter 3, we see Adam's failure to lead. When, when the serpent comes to Eve and tempts her with this, this question that, that it's actually beneath every single temptation that you will face in this life and anybody else is when Satan comes and says, did God really say He's, he's getting them to question God's word, that question God's goodness. And at that time was one command. Don't eat, eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was it, one. Now, when Eve had the fruit, godly leadership would have looked like Adam saying, nope, not in this house, and then crushing the head of the snake. But that's not what happened. Adam, Adam dropped his guard he failed to lead in a Godward direction. And what happened was the curse. Genesis chapter three, sin is introduced in the world. A curse sits upon all of the cosmos, which leads to Adam and Eve getting the boot from Eden. And we see the similar pattern through Psalm 78. We don't have time to go through all of this, but the, the, the gist of the centerpiece of this is that where there is sin, there will be consequences. Where, where there is a lack of godly leadership, there will be futility and hardship. And if it were not for God's kindness to his people, bad leadership will always lead to destruction. Now, thankfully, God is kind. He preserves his people. He preserves a remnant as we see throughout the rest of this passage. But there's always hardship. Now, the hardship that we, the hardship that a lack of godly leadership produces doesn't just isolate itself in, in the current generation. It always flows downstream until it's interrupted. In fact, we still feel the effects of Adam's sin that the futility of sin and the curse, um, the, the weight of the curse that's upon this world is still very much felt by everyone here. And not only is it Adam's failure of leadership, but there are others who have failed in leading us before. And we feel that, and it carries, it has this ripple effect into the next generation and the one beyond that. Now, if we're not vigilant, vigilant, what did I say? If we're not on guard, we'll follow in the sins of our fathers. That's, that's just how it works. 
If something doesn't interrupt that, if something doesn't break that pattern, we will follow in their footsteps and contribute to the futility and the hurt that comes with poor leadership. Now, this is why the Apostle Paul, at the end of Ephesians, uh, the, the letter to the Ephesians, he says to fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. And what he's saying there isn't just um, don't make your children angry at you. What he's saying is don't fail, don't abdicate your leadership where your children will just continue to drift further and further away from the Lord. He says to bring them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. The padilla, it's a whole worldview uh, training, it's a whole development of the self. He says to train them, to instruct them, to fight against the current. Now for the church, for the family, for our city, to enjoy the benefits and the blessings that God has for his people, we need servant leadership. We need shepherd leaders. Now this is why you go to the end of Psalm 78 after a bunch of brokenheartedness about how poorly Israel has functioned. Um, he comes to the end and he starts to gush over King David. In verse 70, uh, 69, he says, he built a sanctuary in the high heavens like the earth, which, is, which he has founded forever. He chose David. So he's got this, this sanctuary, this, this kingdom, and he chose David to be his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. It says, with an upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. Now, Israel needed godly shepherds. We need godly shepherds. We need men, like David, who are men after God's own heart. And the thing that made David ready to stand up and to lead the people of Israel, the people of Jacob, God's inheritance, was that he cut his teeth in the pasture. He went from leading literal sheep to the flock of God. From, from leading people or leading sheep in the pasture to leading people in a Godward direction towards flourishing. David broke the cycle of unfaithfulness and rebellion of those who had come before him, and he started a new legacy. Now, God is doing that right here and right now in this church and across the globe. God is bringing a a, a new wave of first-generation Christians, P people didn't, who didn't have biological fathers to teach in the way of the Lord, but those who have been brought into the family of God, who've been adopted, and now they see God as their heavenly father and then are, are living life within the church. They are being brought up and raised in the church to know God, to love God, to serve God. And not just those who are far off. God's also doing this by de-religiousizing people who have grown up in the church, people who have a, a narrow view of what it means to, to be a Christian, to be a shepherd leader, to, to be a father, to be a, a business owner, to be whatever it is, um, to be a church leader. God is bringing up shepherd leaders right now, men and women who are in stark contrast to the men of Israel. These are people who spur on flourishing and don't add to futility. These are people who are hope bearers. See, that, that's, that's one of the traits of shepherd leadership. People who look at the current condition and say, well, this isn't that great right now. And I believe 
there's something to shoot for. I think there's reason to have hope. God is pulling us into a brighter future. Shepherd leaders are hope bearers, which is why we can instruct our children to set their hope in God. Now, the question here that I want to spend the last few minutes asking um, to wrap this up is, how do we become like David? We saw what went wrong. There's failure, unfaithfulness. They walked away. They abdicated their responsibility. Now, how do we become like David that's, that's celebrated here at the end of Psalm 78? How do we get it right? Now, the, the last verse of this Psalm, 72, gives us four traits of, of, of a shepherd leader. This is something that all Christian leaders regardless of what, um, what scope of leadership, how big your influence is as a leader. This goes for all Christian leaders, but it is especially true of men. Four things. Let me just read this here. Verse 72 says this, with an upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. Let me pull four things out here. First of all, vision. Shepherd leaders have vision for where they are going. That they have an idea of here's where God is wanting to bring us and here's how we get there. Now, thankfully, it's not up to us to, to um, manufacture this vision. It's not up to you, dad. It's not up to you to kind of like sit down one night on, on your uh, lazy boy and like craft up this like strategic plan of here's what I'm gonna do or here's where our family's gonna go. God has already provided you the template for this in his word. He gives us the vision of what a godly household looks like. He gives us a vision of, of what a godly contributor to our society, what a godly church member looks like. He gives us the vision. And what we do as, sh as shepherd leaders is we adopt that as our own. We bring that into the heart. We say, okay, this is how, this is what this looks like. This is what the, the word of God unpacked in my context actually looks like. And to do that well, we have to, as shepherd leaders, resist the cultural current that wants to pull us away from that. We have to align our lives to the word of God. Now, this means that fathers, there should be house rules. Like, in our family, this is what we do. In our family, we worship on Sunday mornings. In our family, we begin our meals by giving thanks to God who provides abundantly for us. In our family, we open the word of God together. In our family, we forgive one another. In our family, we trust God and obey him, even when it doesn't seem easy. In our, in our family, we serve one another and we serve those beyond this family. We have house rules for how we, and what our family should look like. You have vision. Now, this is true of, of the whole entity, but it's also true of the individual. Like, for your children, you, it's not like you have a vision for your children that you point them in the direction that, that they ought to go. Bad parenting says, uh, whatever you want to do, whatever, blah, 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 blah. it's very wishy-washy about this. In fact, um, one of the things the Lord says in his, his words, um, the one who fails to discipline, the, the one who fails to instruct, who fails to, to train, hates his children. That's a mark of a bad parent. A godly parent trains and instructs and directs. Now, this doesn't mean we become domineering. It doesn't mean that we, we sort of uh, create this um, 
perfect lifestyle that you have to abide by these things. No, no, no. It doesn't do that in the sort of minutia of a, of a child's life. But it does say, here are the things that you need to embody if you're going to walk with Jesus. Put on kindness. You're loving, tenderhearted, compassionate. You're full of conviction of the word of God. Things like that, that we want to direct our kids in a very specific way, like arrows, pointing them in the right direction to shoot them out. Dads, let me ask you this. Do you have a vision for your family? Can you see out? I mean, you, you don't have to see out super far, but do you, have a, do you have an idea of where the Lord is wanting to take your family? Now, vision must be, I just said that, I said it doesn't have to be super far, but I was lying. Um, you, you have to have a long vision. You have to have a long range vision that reaches far beyond the grave. Here's what I mean. Um, a vision that once you're gone, those who have come after you are walking in the way that you've established that they would carry on a legacy of faith. Jonathan Edwards used to pray 10 generations out. He'd sit down in his study in the morning and pray to the Lord and ask for all of his, you know, his daily meat needs to be met. And then he would pray out to 10 generations that the Lord would grip his family in such a way that they would have a massive kingdom impact. And you know what? They did. The Lord answered his prayer. The Lord was gracious to these things. Now just, just imagine that was one dude. Just imagine if a church, even of our size, was committed to that, this, this praying out to 10 generations. The, the, imagine the, the potential kingdom breakthrough that we could see in the Quad Cities five years, 10 years, 20, 50 years down the line. To see men and women who love the Lord with all their all stepping into the world and changing the world for the better. That's the kind of vision that we need to have, fathers. The second trait that's laid out is character. It says that David led with an upright heart. He, he was moral. He had virtue. He had integrity. David walked humbly with God as an example to the people. Now, if you know your Bible, you're like, when's the but coming? Because there is a but. Because David wasn't perfect. David was kind of a bonehead sometimes. Um, David found himself in sin, and sometimes very big sin. And when David was confronted by his sin, he, here's the difference between a, a godly leader and a, um, I don't know, a poser, I guess. I don't know. I, I didn't think that word through. The difference is that, that when a leader is confronted by their sin, they repent. They, they cut ties with their sin. They deal with the consequences and they go before God to receive grace and forgiveness and cleansing. Now, a perfect example of this is what happens with David and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel verse, or chapter 11. David has, commits an, has an affair with her, and a lot of, basically, has a man murdered in, in the whole wake of this, his whole agenda. It's quite despicable. But one of the things that we see in Psalm 51 is when, when David is confronted by his sin, he repents. David 
renews himself in the covenant of grace. That whole psalm goes, is, is wash me of my iniquity, cleanse me. He's like, I, I know I've done my sin, take it away from me. And then on the tail end of that psalm, he says, and then I will instruct sinners in your way. David had this thing where wherever he veered off, the Lord was gracious to bring him back to the course, to continue his walk in faith and repentance to renew himself in the covenant of grace and to obey God from that point forward. And guess what? You do that, you sin, brought back. See, a Christian leader, a shepherd leader is marked by faith and repentance. They have this virtue and morality. They, they have traits that, that are non-negotiable. Traits that in order to do the things that God calls fathers and husbands and leaders in the church and leaders in the community to do, you have to have these godly characteristics. And some of them, I wish I had time, I don't, to go to Romans 12 where they're listed out. These are things that you have. It's, it's, the, it's the relational um, equity that's required. It's, it's the, 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 the moral equity that's required to do what God calls us to do. So fathers, do you have that? Are you, can you say that you have an upright heart? And if you don't, you have an opportunity today in faith and repentance, receiving the grace of Jesus and letting that redefine who you are and abiding by the word. Now, vision and character must be paired with a third trait, which is skill. We're told with an upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. Skill is wisdom and practice. Skill is the ability to know how to do something. And then the wisdom to execute. The time in the pastures prepared David to lead with a skillful hand. He was, his, his leadership skills were cut. His teeth were cut in a grassy knoll. He learned how to lead. Now, if you are a father, God has called you to lead. Um, if you don't know how to lead, you need to learn. That there's an invitation to learn how to do this. And there are many places where you can learn how to do this. One is to observe in community. To, to, to look to other men who you admire, who do embody this sense of vision and, and character, and you have seen skill demonstrated, where you can say, I want to emulate them. And in that sense, they become spiritual fathers to you, which is a good thing. It's good to have spiritual fathers. Community is a means of grace where God develops. But it's also a place where we get to cut our teeth ourselves. Within the church, practicing leadership, other places where God is given us resources to help us grow is within the word of God. God. God has a lot of examples of men who have led well. And there are books out there. One of them we've made available to you, Gospel Dad, a helpful book in this, this area of, of gospel leadership. And then as fathers, as we think to the next generation, we have to think about how, how do I give my kids low stake reps to cut their own teeth in leadership? A, a conversation that we have often with our older boys is that they are leaders. Like that people, even if it's just their younger brothers, look up to them and they need to set an example. Like they, they need to, to learn the skills of leading. 
And so fathers, we need to entrust our sons, entrust our children with responsibility so they can cut their teeth. So when the Lord calls them up to the plate, they can do what they've been called to do. Now, skill isn't just knowing how to do something, but the manner in which it is done. So it's with a skillful hand that David leads. To lead skillfully, you cannot be a bully. You cannot be a dictator at the top of the hierarchy, nor can you be a passive and sort of um, abdicating leader. You must lead with a skillful hand, which requires both firmness and conviction and tenderness and gentleness. It's a both am thing. Firmness and conviction and tenderness and gentleness. I've got this saying up on my wall that reminds me often, it's mission first, people always. God is calling us to do something. And we can do God's thing in our own way. We can do it harshly. We can do it as a bully. We can do it even, well, actually, you can not do it. You can fail to do it by just being passive. But mission first, people always means that we are moving forward and we're bringing people along with us. We're calling people up. We're helping them rise to the challenge. To be a, a shepherd leader, you no, have to know how to wield your shepherd's crook. Right? Sometimes it's a firm, sometimes it's tender. You have to know your flock and how to do it best. And the fourth trait, sacrifice. See, shepherd leaders don't just lead beyond the grave where you're thinking into the, the future. Shepherd leaders lead from the grave. Leadership is death. Leadership is death. Leadership is the hardest thing you will do. Shepherd leadership is pouring yourself out so that others can live. See, a shepherd leader says, if anybody has to give it up, it's me. If anybody's called to, uh, to, the, to the, the table, to the plate, it's me. I'm going. I'm the one who lays my life down first. That's the mentality of a shepherd leadership. I'm the first one to die so others can live. Shepherd leadership is costly. It's sacrificial. It takes a physical toll. Like in the early years of, 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 of parenting, early years of, of shepherding, you got to bend down to teach your kids. Physically, I mean, and, and your body will take a toll in, a, in many other ways. Spiritually, emotionally, financially, it is costly and sacrificial. Shepherd leadership means doing the hard thing and the right thing at all costs, even if it costs everything. Now, David demonstrates this kind of shepherd leadership as he tends his flock. One of the things that we're told about David is as he's out in, in the fields, he went up against lions and bears, wolves. David faced danger. He did the hard thing. He didn't tuck his tail and run when adversity popped up. David laid it all out to benefit his flock. And then later on, actually at the beginning of his, his uh, kingdom, his era, his reign, you see this with Goliath, famous story. Little David gets up there and faces Goliath when nobody else from the people of Israel will stand up and do it. Now, my point of the sermon, as much as we can see um, 
things that are worth replicating in David. My point of my sermon is not to be more like David, but to be more like Jesus because Jesus is the true and better King David. Jesus is the shepherd leader that perfectly embodies all four of these traits at all times. He tells us that he is the good shepherd. Jesus had a vision. Jesus had a vision for his people. That vision is glory. It's beauty. When Jesus looks out at Matthew 9 and he sees the crowds gathered, he sees, what he sees in his his mind's eye view is he sees people who are like sheep without a shepherd. He says they were wandering and harassed by sin and the curse. People who, who just were taking the brunt of the futility of abdication and failed leadership that came before. And he does, when he looks at them, he doesn't go, oh, they served them right. They're getting what they deserve. Jesus looks at them and says, I have compassion for them. He's got a heart that is inclined towards his sheep. He loves the people. He loves the sheep. We see Jesus' character where he takes on responsibility. He takes on ownership. See, instead of, of being like a hired hand who, when they, a hired hand shepherd, this talked about, I think, where is it, John 10. A hired hand a shepherd, when they face adversity, when they face um, the threat, they're quick to run because they know it's not their flock. Jesus does the opposite. He sees the threats that are out there and he steps into it. Jesus takes responsibility. He takes ownership. He's, he's upright. He's sinless. He is the true man after God's own heart. And we see Jesus loaded with skill. That Jesus is both tough and tender. Jesus was committed to the mission of God and the flourishing of God's people. He had all of these things. And then we see the fourth trait in that he sacrifices himself. In John 10, 11, Jesus says that I am the good shepherd and the shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus goes to the cross. The the biggest threat that you and I face is sin and death. And Jesus took it upon himself. This means that shepherd leadership is cruciform. Shepherd leadership is is done in view of the cross, our good shepherd who lays down his life for his flock. Shepherd leadership means that there is a cross and a crown of thorns involved. See, Jesus is the king who comes not to be served, but to serve. And as we occupy this world as God's people, as imitators of Christ, shepherd leadership, cruciform leadership, whatever you want to call it, is the kind of leadership that every Christian is meant to emulate. A shepherd leader, a cruciform leader, points to Jesus and the suffering that he took upon himself on our behalf. We proclaim the glorious redemptive deeds of God who worked mightily through the grace of Christ. And then as a shepherd leader, we demonstrate the dying love of Jesus for our own people. We lay our lives down. 
See, every leadership position that God ordains comes with a crown of thorns. This is is why godly leadership is contrasted from worldly leadership. Godly leadership comes with a crown of thorns. Now, this is one of the reasons why the Bible instructs us to honor our parents, to honor our leaders. It's because those people who are leading in a Godward direction are suffering on our behalf. And the Bible instructs us to honor our parents, to honor our leaders, but when you are living a cruciform life, when you're leading from the grave, the praise of man cannot sustain cruciform leadership alone. What sustains us is knowing that we have a good shepherd who put it all out there for us. We have a good shepherd who died so that we could come alive. We have a good shepherd who who took upon himself the curse of our sin so that we could receive his blessing of righteousness. We have a good shepherd who was forsaken, pushed off by God so that we could be brought in. We have a good shepherd who protects us at all costs, who is right now at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. And we have a good shepherd who will lead us to glory. And 1 Peter 5 speaks of shepherd leaders, the new heavens, new earth, taking off the crown of thorns, throwing them before the Lord, and receiving a crown of glory. See, the way to glory comes through a cross. Jesus has achieved glory for us. He's brought us in. Now, as as his people, let us live out of this cruciform identity. Let us live, let us glorify God and enjoy him forever and help others do the same. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love to us. That while we were wandering off, while we were rebellious, hard-hearted, you moved toward us. And this meal that we have before us reminds us that it was your body that was broken. It was your blood that was shed, not our own. It was by this, this loving act, uh, this dying act of, 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 of love for God and others that we are brought in, that we are made alive. We thank you for this meal. We ask that today as we take it, would it not just be a reminder of the sacrifice of Christ, but would it be spiritual strength so that we, whether you're man or woman, father, husband, wife, mother, business owner, MC leader, pastor, and whatever other leadership capacity there is, would it be spiritual strength and nourishment for us to live as these cruciform leaders that you are calling us to be? Would we give our lives so that others could live? Would we put on the crown of thorns that we might one day receive the crown of glory that Jesus bestows upon us? We pray this, that you would do this mighty work in us, that you would bring something of glory out of the ashes, that from this generation to the next, to the next, to 10 generations and beyond, would you bring about this good work? Would life abound? I pray this in Jesus' name.